What is your posture toward the poor? What's your posture toward the poor? When you see people at street corners asking for money, or you meet someone who maybe hasn't showered in a while, or you see day laborers working around town, or maybe you're driving through a poorer part of our city, what kinds of thoughts come into your head? What's your posture toward the poor? I wonder, have you ever realized or considered, understood that part of the essence of Christianity is caring for the poor? We just heard Alberta read the parable of the Good Samaritan. Did you notice that the parable began when the lawyer, the expert in the law, the teacher of the law, asked Jesus what he had to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by giving him not an exposition of justification by faith, but he responded by giving him the example of the Samaritan who cared for the physical and economic needs of the man on the road. Also, in Mark, over in Mark, Jesus is approached by the rich young ruler and he's asked a simply, uh, essentially the same question, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus concludes by saying, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. In Matthew 25, Jesus teaches that people who um, minister to, care for the hungry, naked, sick, imprisoned, and homeless will be accepted on the last day. Those who don't minister to the hungry, sick, etc. on the last day will be judged on the last day. So it seems that based on these few examples from Jesus' own ministry and His own mouth, that caring for the material needs of the poor is part of the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. I wonder if you believe that. That caring for the material needs of the disadvantaged is part of the essence of our faith. Do you believe that caring for those who have material needs is part of the essence of Christianity? In other words, do you believe that you can be a Christian and have no compassion that overflows into action for those who have needs? I wonder, are, are we obeying these commands? It's interesting that in the parable of the Good Samaritan, that Samaritan risked his safety, he interrupted his, interrupted his schedule, he literally got his hands dirty and bloody when he involved himself with that person on the road, that person in need, who was a person of another race and another class, no less. In that parable, Jesus actually commands us, commands us, to provide shelter, finances, medical care, and friendship to people who like them. He says at the end of the parable, verse 37, go and do likewise. That command wasn't just for the expert in the law. It wasn't just for that person asking the question. The command is for us, for all of His followers, for all time. Go and do likewise. Go and do. Go and do. Not think about it, pray about it, do it if you can. Go and do. Go and do, He says. So are we obeyed? As a church, as a church, are we obeying this command? Are we going and doing likewise? Are we having mercy on those who need mercy? As individuals, are you going and doing likewise? Do we, do you, do I understand that ministering to the needy is part of the essence of what it means to follow Jesus? Now, frankly, 
I don't think I've taught on this enough. I've got to just be perfectly honest with you. I don't think I've taught on this topic very much around here, and I wish that I would have. I, I think I should have. In a church like ours, a Reformed Baptist church, we are quick and we should be quick to focus on justification by faith alone, on the central message of Jesus' death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, and not as quick to think about the implications of that message for our daily lives or for our life as a church. So again, do you understand? I mean, please, think about this carefully. Do you understand that caring for the material poor is part of the essence, and I'm using that word on purpose, essence of Christianity. In other words, without it, you don't have the real thing. Do you believe that? You, say, you may say, well, I thought we're saved by faith alone. I would say, absolutely, absolutely we're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. But Jesus teaches us that caring for the poor is part of what true faith in Him looks like. We may raise other objections like, well, I know I should help people out, but I just don't really know how far I should go. Should I help every person out in need? Or maybe you object, you ask, shouldn't we just focus on sharing the gospel and let the government worry about taking care of the poor? Maybe you, maybe you think, well, I'm not really good at that kind of work. You know, I've tried to help. I've tried to do things. Didn't go well. It's just not really my gift. It's not really my skill set. Or you're thinking, well, I'm already really involved in my church. I'm really busy with work and family. I just don't think I can do anything more right now. Or you're thinking, I barely have enough money for myself. How could I do anything to help anyone else? How could I give anything to help anyone else? Or maybe you're thinking, I know many of us, I know I've thought this. Let's be honest. Aren't many of the poor simply irresponsible? Why would I help irresponsible people? These may be legitimate questions to ask at some point, but couldn't they also just as easily be a wall of indifference we hide behind that keeps us comfortable and protects us from the needs of others? Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan says, get out from behind the wall of indifference that you live behind, Christian. You say you follow me? When all you do is live for your comfort? People are suffering everywhere and all you do is live for your comfort and you say you follow me? No, he says, no, 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 no. No, that's not how this works. We're saved by faith alone and that faith produces a desire to care for the needy. So what's your posture toward the poor? What's my posture toward the poor? Who are you more like in Jesus' parable? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? When you see the poor in our city, what kinds of thoughts go, by your, go through your head? Are you more like the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? Last week, in 1 John 3, we saw that John believed and taught that sacrificial sharing, sacrificial sharing was one of the primary implications of Jesus' death on the cross. Why don't you look there again really quickly. 1 John 3, 16 through 18. What I'm doing today is I'm going to, I'm going to, take that section of last week's text and expound on it or bring some implications out of it in another direction. Last week was more along the lines of what we do with our material resources, finances, by way of giving to the church and the first fruits and such things like that. But this week I'm going to go in a slightly different direction. But first look at those verses, 
1 John 3, 16 through 18. Let's remember again what he said. Last week we saw this. Sacrificial sharing. One of the main implications of Jesus' death for us. 1 John 3, 16. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought, ought, moral imperative, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide or live in him? 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John is saying, verse 16, that the cross teaches us to live sacrificial lives. Jesus laid down his life, we should lay down our life. One of the ways we do this, verse 17, is by sharing our resources with those in need. If anyone has the world's goods and sees a need, meet the need if you can. He says not doing that means God, God's love doesn't live in us. This is really confrontational stuff. Verse 17, if you see your brother in need, yet close your heart against him, how does God's love live in you? <laughs> then he says 18 and 18, true love is revealed through action, not words. Don't love with words, love with deed, love and truth. So, this morning I want us to spend some more time thinking about some of the implications of that section of 1 John 3. This idea that John, according to John, the apostle, if we follow Jesus, we will be um, living sacrificial lives. And that means, in this passage, that means giving up our material goods for the good of others in need. Here's what I want to do this morning. What can we do? What are some other things we can do? What... What can we do and then why should we do it? What can we do and why should we do it? That's where we're going. Number one, what can we do? Then number two, why should we do it? Under number one, we're going to look at Galatians 6.10. Then um, under number two, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8.9. So that's where we're going. Number one, what can we do? Galatians 6.10. You don't have to turn there. You don't want to, but if you want to, you can. Galatians 6.10 says this. I love this verse. It's been so helpful in my thinking about this question. What on earth? We're supposed to help people. What are we supposed to do? Galatians 6.10 is so helpful. Paul tells us this. Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's take that little bit of time. First thing to notice is we aren't supposed to try to do everything. Very first phrase, as we have opportunity. As we have opportunity. In other words, we can't do all the good that needs to be done. We can't meet all the needs that need to be met. We'll burn ourselves out if we try. We'll do more harm than good if we try to do everything everywhere, if we overextend ourselves. No is one of the most spiritual things we can say to opportunities to serve. If you say yes to everything, you're going to end up doing everything moderately well or not well at all. So you need to think about what are the few things you can say yes to so that you can do those things really, really well. As we have opportunity, the way a pastor put it to me once when I was on a mission trip in Zambia, we were discussing an opportunity that I had and he just simply said, not every opportunity is an obligation. I'll never forget that. Not every opportunity is an obligation. Just because an opportunity falls in your lap, it's not God speaking to you necessarily saying, hey, do this. If that were the case, then... God would literally be wanting His people, He would be wanting His people to be burning out all the time. Because opportunities just keep coming. They don't stop. So as you have opportunity, this phrase, this 
This little phrase, this principle encourages us to be faithful and the opportunities are right in front of us while we wait for opportunities that we may prefer. You may be thinking, well, I don't really want to do this thing. I have an opportunity to do it, but I'd rather really do this. Well, be faithful and the things that are right in front of you while you wait for things that may come later. Jesus says it this way, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is faithful in very little can be faithful in much. How can we expect to be faithful in larger things if we aren't faithful in smaller things? For example, our church uh, will not send people on mission trips who aren't actively sharing their faith here at home. If you're like, oh, I want the nations to know Jesus, and like you haven't shared your faith with anyone in months, <laughs> then we're going to probably not help you get to the nations until you're more faithful here at home. How can we hope to end world hunger if we aren't helping our friends or neighbors who are struggling financially? As we have opportunity, as we have opportunity means we should focus on faithfulness in the things that are right in front of you first. So if you have a neighbor, a roommate, a classmate, a family member, someone in your sphere of influence that you, you, you know they have a need, but you are not working to help them in some way, but then you want to do like, you want to give money to World Vision to end world hunger, you want to, whatever, then you're missing an opportunity right in front of you. You're missing this principle. You're, you're wanting to do the big thing when God is asking you to do the small thing. One who's faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. As we have opportunity next, notice that Paul says we should do good to everyone. Well, that seems overwhelming. <laughs> do good to everyone. Well, you have to keep these phrases together. As you have opportunity, do good to everyone. So he's not literally saying, hey, do good to everyone you know, everywhere, all the time. He's saying, as you have opportunity, do good to everyone. He's saying that there's no, there's no certain kind of people that you should focus on. He says everyone. He says everyone. Do good to everyone. Now even that can be um, ambiguous and not super helpful. So what kind of good, what kind of people maybe should we focus on? If we're going to pick just a few things to focus on, what should we do? Well, thankfully the scripture helps us. It gives us many examples of the kind of good that we can do. In the Old Testament in particular, I just prayed this, God continually called His people to care for four groups of people. The poor, the immigrant, the fatherless, or the orphan, and the widow. The poor, the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. Zechariah, for example. For example. Zechariah 7, 9-10, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. Those kinds of verses could be multiplied dozens and dozens and dozens of times. We read one this morning, beginning of our service, Psalm 146. The widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. These four groups of people were constantly put in front of the people of Israel as the people that needed the most help. In, and it makes sense because in an agrarian society like theirs, these four groups of people had no social power. They lived hand to mouth. They'd be in danger of starvation. If famine or war came, the widow or the fatherless had no husband or father to provide for them or protect them. The immigrant or the poor had no land to work as their own. These groups had no economic power and thus were constantly in danger and in need. Today we might add refugee as a subgroup under immigrant those who are displaced from their homes, living in a foreign land, people who are forced to settle in a place they don't know, 
among people they don't understand, with next to nothing but their clothes on their backs. Under the poor, because poor is pretty broad, also kind of ambiguous. We might add qualifiers or, or, or specifics like homeless, single parents, some single parents, many single parents, many of the elderly in assisted living. Under orphans, we might add those in the foster care system. These groups represent, and I could go on, but these groups are just some of the groups that represent the most vulnerable in our society. The poor, the immigrant, the fatherless, the widow. The Bible makes it clear that helping these people out, helping the vulnerable out, isn't just charity, by the way. It's not just you doing something nice. The Bible actually uses the word justice. Deuteronomy 7, excuse me, 10, 17 through 18, For the Lord your God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. So when God talks about these groups in the Old Testament, He often uses the word justice, meaning that to neglect to care for those in these groups is not merely a lack of mercy or charity. It's considered injustice. Justice is not just about punishing those who do wrong but also about protecting and providing for those who need help. It's about doing what's right. It's about giving people what they need, helping people find what they need, whether that's provision, protection, employment, medical care, food. We could go on. According to the Bible, ignoring the needs of the most vulnerable among us isn't only unloving, it's unjust. It's not right. This is why Jesus can say, go and do likewise. Don't, don't think that you have eternal life if you ignore the needs of people right in front of you. That's flat out injustice and doesn't, shouldn't characterize God's people. So what are some specific ways? And I could do a whole lot here. I could give you a whole lot of examples here. I'm sure you can think of one. In fact, I'd encourage you all to talk over lunch about more ways you can do justice, do good to the vulnerable in our society. I thought of just a few examples. Here are some specific ways we could, as individuals or as a church, do good or do justice uh, to the vulnerable in our area. We could visit nursing homes and pray and visit with those who live there. Have you ever been in an assisted living center? Have you ever been in a nursing home? Yeah. There are. Tens of thousands of men and women made in the image of God sitting in assisted living centers in our city who no one comes to see, who are desperately alone and afraid, who are struggling in emotional ways, physical ways. They've, many of them are on the doorstep of death and don't have the gospel. Or someone just to hold their hand and notice them, to, to, to recognize their humanity, to sit with them for five seconds. I wonder if the Lord might create, I kind of hope and pray He would create in our church a ministry to the aging and the assisted living and nursing centers across our city. I think that would be really great. What about... Orphans, well, if you're married, you could be a foster parent. You could adopt children. 
If you're married or not married, you could give money to adoption agencies. You could give money to those who are adopting or trying to adopt. You should offer, you could offer babysitting or clothes or diapers to those who are fostering or adopting. What about the immigrants or refugees? Well, we could, if we employ them, we could make sure that they're paid a fair wage, that they're not taken advantage of. We could work to find ways for them to have work, to make a living for them and their families. What about the poor? One of the best things we could do for the poor in many cases, I think, and this is just my opinion, my ideas, is go um, to the places where they live and just be there. And just be there. I don't know what that could, that could look like a million things. Maybe live there. Maybe visit the shops they work at, the restaurants they work at. For example, um, there's a shop down the street. Some of you have been there because I've taken you there. It's called John's Backyard Grill. <laughs> Not named after me. It's in a gas station. You would never know it's there, but it's run by a couple immigrants who are poor. By the way, the food is amazing. It's really good food. One of the reasons I like going there is it's close. You can walk there. I like walking. And... I would rather, frankly, give them money than McDonald's. Uh, look, I eat at McDonald's too, okay? I'm not saying this isn't a moral imperative, okay? I'm just asking you to think. What are some creative ways you can help? What are some things you can do to put some of the dollars in your hands in the hands of those who need help? Supporting their businesses might be one way to do that. Volunteering at a homeless shelter you haven't heard of Dallas Life Foundation in downtown Dallas, it's one of the best homeless shelters in our city, in my opinion. Dallas Life. They could use your money or your help. You could buy groceries for a single mom or a single dad. You could buy them a car or a house. You could just give them money anonymously. Maybe in your neighborhood or your apartment complex, you know of people who are downtrodden and struggling? What if you just left an envelope full of $50 on their doorstep with a note that says, Jesus loves you? There are literally thousands of things you could do to help the immigrant, the poor, the, the fatherless, and the widows. Doing this isn't our default setting. If you're anything like me, you, you're, you're very much driven by your schedule. I don't like deviating from my schedule. Interestingly, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he literally had to interrupt his schedule to, to care for this guy. His schedule was thrown off by this guy in need. Doing good works is not our default setting. It doesn't come naturally. It's not easy. It takes practice. It's something that we have to cultivate and learn. Of course, the best way to learn is to do. You can read a book about this. You can listen to the sermon. You can go to a class. But doing good works is the best way to learn how to do good works. So you're like, John, I still don't really know what to do. I don't know what you should do either. So to steal Kevin DeYoung's book title, just do something. Just do something. If you see a need somewhere, just do what you can to meet that need. And see how it goes. So as you have opportunity, Paul says, do good to all people. Then Galatians 6.10 he gives us one final piece of instruction. At the very end of the verse, he says, Let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. 
What's the household of faith? The church, the house of God, the church. So as Christians, when we think about how we'll serve others, what, what we'll give our money to, what we'll give our time to, where we'll volunteer, we must start with the local church. He says, especially. Do good to everyone, especially. Do good to everyone, especially. So there's a prioritizing in Paul's mind. Do what you can out there in the world, but make sure you don't miss helping the household of faith. The faith. You have to help the church first, he says. Believers in Christ need to look inside their house before they look outside their house when considering what to do with their time and resources. This doesn't nullify, again, what Paul said about helping those outside the church. He plainly says, do good to everyone as you have opportunity. But he wants the church not to forget her children. If I took my paycheck and just sent all of it to Prestonwood Pregnancy Center, which, by the way, is a great place for you to work and serve and volunteer and give money to. They're working with the poor and the fatherless uh, day in and day out. They're just down the street near UTD, Prestonwood Pregnancy Center. Highly recommend them to you. But what if I just took my paycheck, sent it all to Prestonwood Pregnancy Center every single month, um, and you know that'd really bless their ministry. I'm sure they'd love that. That'd be great. But who would be to blame when my children don't have food, clothes, or a place to live? That'd be my fault. <laughs> That'd be my fault. So our help must start at home and move out from there. Our call is to be faithful to what's right in front of us and then move out from there. So again, if you're like, oh, I want to help the homeless on the other side of the world, or I want to preach the gospel on the other side of the world, or I want to help the aging all over the city, but you have people in your local church that you aren't helping that need help, then you're missing the prioritizing that Paul tells us to have right here. Do good. As you have opportunity, do all the good you can, but make sure you start with the church, especially to the household of faith. This is why John's call, back to 1 John 3, to sacrificial sharing is focused on brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, brother, code word, Christian, church member, brother or sister in Christ, if anyone sees their brothers in need, do what you can to help. Or Matthew 25, when Jesus says, As you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. I'd encourage you to later this afternoon read Matthew 25, where Jesus talks about the person. You're like, well, I did, you know, uh, all this. Uh, when did I not do all this? And Jesus is like, no, if you didn't do these things to my brothers, then you don't know me. You're not going to go to heaven. Brothers is the church. Those who serve the poor and needy in the church, according to Jesus, are those who will inherit eternal life because the church is Jesus' body. So if you serve His body, you love His body, thus love Him. What's your posture, brothers and sisters? What's your posture toward the poor in the church? Did you know that our church is full of people who have needs? You're like, no, I didn't really know that. Well, okay, I'm telling you now. Our church is full of people who have needs. You're like, man, I just don't really know anybody. Okay, you should get to know people. You should get to know people. You'll start to learn really quick where people are at, what's going on. You should ask your elders, hey, I want to help. I don't even know where to start. Maybe I got a little extra money, I got a little extra time. I, I don't know what I can do. What can I do? Ask Jared or I. We'd love to point you in the right direction. There are people in our church who have needs. If you just want to give money to the member care fund, you can do that. Put on the memo line. 
Member Care Fund. Those funds go directly to helping members in need or those directly recommended by a member. What can we do? Well, Paul says in Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, we do good to everyone, especially to the household of faith. So what can you do, brothers and sisters, what can you do to help the church? What can you do to help those in need in the church? Pray about that. Talk with each other about that. Strategize. Plan. Pray. Let's see what the Lord does. Now, finally, number two, why should we do it? What can we do? Number one. Number two, why should we do it? Back to 1 John 3. John says that one of the ways we can test the genuineness of our faith. Remember, the, first, the letter of 1 John is all about testing the genuineness of faith. What is true faith? What, is it, what does it really look like to be a Christian? A real Christian. A true Christian. He says one of the ways we can test the genuineness of our faith is by looking at our posture toward those in need. This is verse 17. He says it's a matter of our hearts, not not just our actions. If anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He says if we close our hearts against those in need, the love of God doesn't live in us. Now interesting, he he doesn't say if you don't do anything, the love of God doesn't live in you. He says if you close your heart, if you close your heart, which means, by the way, you might be doing stuff to help people with a, but still have a closed heart. More on that in a second. More than action is needed to reveal true faith. If you close your heart, in other words, if your heart is, has no pity, no mercy, no compassion, if you don't grieve over those who are hurting, if you don't think about their pain and try to feel some of their pain, how, John says, how can you say the love of God is in you? If you close your heart to people in need, how does God live in you? That's what John says. I don't write the mail, I just deliver it. That's right there. If you close your heart against those in need, he says, how can God's love live in you? And, and why, why would he say that? Because God's love is revealed to us when he came to us in our need. <laughs> he gave us his heart. We know that because he gave us his son, We should therefore go and do likewise. We should have hearts like God's heart, merciful hearts, soft hearts, caring hearts, hearts full of compassion toward those in need. How do we get this kind of heart? How do we get this kind of heart? Well, Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. So the thing that changes our hearts is the grace of Jesus. We see His grace in what He did. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. We see His grace in what He did. He's the eternal Son of God, the Lord of glory, the ruler of heaven and earth, the wealthiest being in the universe who left it all for you. How many rich people do you know? Or would you, if you had all the money in the world, would you leave it all to go help a poor person in South Dallas? Or at McCallum Highlands? Would you leave it all to go help an immigrant at a shop down your street? This is what Jesus, He didn't just like, you know, go down the street. He left heaven and came to earth for us. 
For your, Paul says, for your sake, he did it for us. Jesus gave up the riches of his glory to meet us in the dust, to meet us in the mud, to take our poverty on himself. You're like, I'm not poor. I'm, I'm okay. I'm middle class. I'm upper middle class. <laughs> Maybe you're a college student. You're like, I am poor. I'm definitely poor. Wherever you are materially, you're spiritually poor. You're spiritually poor. All of us, apart from Christ, are spiritually poor. He came to meet us in our spiritual, pro- um, in our spiritual poverty, to take our poverty on us, to lift, to lift us up out of the slum of sin and death, to give us a kind of wealth that will never fade, that will never leave. When we start to understand what Jesus did, how rich Jesus is, how he left all of it for us so that we can have what he has. So he didn't just leave his riches. He left his riches, became poor, so that we could have his riches. When we start to understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, our hearts toward the poor will start to change. Do you understand the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? The love of Jesus creates people who love those in need. The love of Jesus creates people who love those in need. Charles Spurgeon said this in a sermon, 1862. Most people don't know, by the way, that Charles Spurgeon had the largest social ministries in all of London and all of England. His church was very evangel- evangelistic and super active socially. This is what he said in a sermon. He said, quote, the, the Christian's sympathy should ever be of the widest character because he, serves a, because he serves a God of infinite love. Listen to this. He says, to me, a follower of Jesus means a friend of man. A Christian is a philanthropist by profession and generous by the force of grace. Wide as the reign of sorrow is the stretch of his love and where he cannot help he pities still. To be a follower of Jesus means to be a friend of man. A Christian is generous by the force of grace. We're not generous for generosity's sake. Grace compels us. It forces us to be generous. This is what John is saying. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. If we understand the grace of Jesus, we'll want to help others in any way that we can. Now actually it's not that It's not that hard to start helping others. Many of you already are helping others. You're doing things to help others in need. Lots of people are doing it. Lots of Christians are doing it. Lots of non-Christians are helping others in need. But I think few people are doing it as a result of grace, as an overflow of love. Many, even professing Christians, help the poor because deep down they're trying to earn something. They want others to see them as charitable, see them as, as generous, as loving and caring with their time and money. A lot of times our work with the needy is driven by a desire to gain approval rather than a realization that we've already been approved in Jesus. So actually, if you start doing some of the things I'm talking about, there's a danger here. This is what I'm saying. There's a danger if you just go and start doing, 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 doing. There's a danger there because you can start subtly thinking that your doing is actually what makes you right with God. And your doing is what makes makes God happy with you. What you're doing is what, what opens God's blessing in your life. 
Because the Bible actually says that even our good works are stained with sin. We can never do enough good works to gain God's grace. An old theologian, John Gerstner, said it like this. He said, quote, Because of the gospel, the way to God is wide open. No sin can hold you back because God has offered justification to the ungodly. Nothing now stands between you and God but your good works. But your good works. What's he saying? He's saying that we often fail, fail to truly come to God because we're still relying on our good works to earn His blessing. We fail to truly cast ourselves completely on Christ because we're still relying on our, our goodness, our good works, our efforts, our helping the needy, our generosity to earn God's blessing. But the Bible says that the only thing we need to be saved is need. The only thing we need is need. All we need to be saved is nothing. Christianity teaches that you have to come to the end of yourself to be saved. You can't come to God boasting about what you've done or what you're doing. You can't even come with the self-pity, oh, I'm so terrible. No, you have to come to the end of yourself completely and cast yourself entirely on Christ. Understanding your need and His sufficiency. This means that we need forgiveness not only for our sins, but forgiveness for our self-centered good works. I'm not saying stop doing good works until your motives are right, you know. Keep doing good things until your motives follow suit. But how often do we do things? Let's just be honest. How often do we do things just so that people think highly of ourselves, highly of us? We, we often will do things in subtly or not so subtly. I know I'm guilty of this. And we kind of want people to see it. Hey, babe, you notice I did the dishes tonight, you know? How often are our good deeds stained with self-righteousness? So we need forgiveness for our sins, but we need forgiveness for our self-centeredness. The only way we can receive salvation, again, is coming to the end of ourselves, repenting of our sins, and repenting of the reasons why we did anything right. And that will put us in a position to realize that we need more than just help to live the right way. We need new hearts. We need grace. And when we come to Jesus, we realize we'll, we'll get nothing but grace upon grace upon grace. You see, Jesus knew what kind of people we would be. And He left His riches and came to our slum of self-righteousness anyways. He came to our slum of sin to give us what He has. He left His riches to come to our poverty to give us His riches, to give us what we could never earn so that by His poverty we could become truly rich. Rich in grace. Rich with eternal life. And when we understand that, when we start to understand this grace, when we understand just how poor we are without Christ and how rich we are with Christ, our hearts toward the poor begin to change. So if I could summarize everything I'm trying to say this morning, it's this. There's a direct connection between your experience of God's grace and your heart for justice and for the poor. There's a direct connection between your experience of God's grace and your heart for justice, your heart for the poor. So, has your heart, has, has your posture been changed by grace? Has your posture toward the poor been changed by grace? Has your posture toward the poor outside of the church or poor inside the church been changed by grace? Has your posture toward the poor been changed by grace? Let's pray together. Father, please help us have hearts like Jesus who left riches 
and entered poverty for our sake. May we go and do likewise. We often don't know what to do. There are so many options, so many opportunities, so many needs. It's overwhelming. And we can't do it all. <clears throat> so give us wisdom. Encourage. Guide us by your spirit into the areas of service that you have for us. As we have opportunity, help us to do good to all people, especially to the household of faith, remembering the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who, though he was rich, for our sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we could become rich. Change our hearts by your grace, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.